Good evening. One of the things that I've noticed in my travels as a Dharma teacher is that I seldom get questions about how to deal with bliss, joy, and contentment. <laughs> so, you know, people are usually inquiring about how to deal with the challenging and and painful emotions associated with grief and sadness and pain and anger and basically coming out of the the trance of conditioning. And most of you have either, or many of you at least, have either heard Tara talk about trance or read uh, her wonderful new book, True Refuge, in, in which she describes it. And the basic idea is that we arrive in this world undivided and whole. And then we go into trance as a result of the conditioning that comes from attempting to win approval from our caregivers. So tonight, I want to talk about dealing with challenging and painful emotions and coming out of trance in our individual and and collective lives. And many of us find ourselves on this path because eventually the pain of trance became more than we could bear. And we bring ourselves out of trance by becoming good curators of the museums of our past and using a mindful awareness to be present with whatever is. So two very important tools on this path are both reflection and presence, the ability to pay attention to whatever is with a mindful, curious, and and kind awareness. And although none of it is our fault, if we come out of the pain of trance, or if we want to come out of the pain of trance, it becomes necessary to explore our conditioning and face some of those shadows that began for all of us in childhood and were probably strongly formed in adolescence. And we do so with a a type of a very special type of investigative curiosity that takes a while to develop. Um, It's non-judgmental and it's kind and it's accepting and it's compassionate. And it's wise in its understanding that these things are here for a reason and served us well and we needed them at one time. And um, they call for our compassion, our understanding, and our gratitude in many ways because they allowed us to survive. And oftentimes it's our individual and collective relationships, whether it's in partnership or friendships or the workplace or the sangha, the family, or as advocates for social justice, that are the vehicles that present themselves. So relationships are the vehicles that present themselves for becoming aware of the pain of trance and the challenges of coming out of trance. And relational work is very important on this path. And the kind of transformation that one can achieve alone in solitude is certainly important, but it's incomplete. So we need both the lessons of intimacy that come with solitude and the lessons of intimacy that can only be found in relationship with each other for true transformation to take place. 
And relational work is risky business. Most of us have experienced both the joy and connection of love as well as feeling hurt and betrayed or wronged in the world of, of personal or collective relationships. An unanticipated and uninvited pain in the world of relationships visits all of us at some time or another. There will always be one or more times in each of our lives when we are called on as a result of an ending or death of some kind to bear the unbearable. When pain or grief unseats the controller and rocks our world in some fundamental ways. And relationships are, are critical for another reason also. We can't embrace the challenge of this path all alone. And that's why Sangha is one of the refuges, community. We need trustworthy relationships and communities of support if we are to sustain the journey toward an undivided life. And that journey requires solitary passages at times, but it is simply too challenging and too taxing to do alone. And it is incomplete when traveled alone. Last year, I spent over three months on retreat myself, largely because of a motorcycle injury that you probably, those of you that were here last year, remember I was still sort of in a cast dealing with. Um, and I used it as an opportunity to, since I couldn't do a lot, to do some things I always wanted to do. And one of them was to go on a long retreat. So I did that. And I had the opportunity to investigate uh, my own form of trance and discover the tender side of, of myself as well as my shadow side during times of intensive practice. And in the spring, I was on retreat for two months. And I touched the innocent vulnerability of the five-year-old in this amazing way that I don't think I ever had before. I learned how not just to love that little five-year-old, but to let that little five-year-old love me and receive the gift of knowing, really knowing in a way I hadn't experienced before, that I could in fact meet my own needs and that I could provide myself with the love that I had been looking outwardly for to a certain extent for much of my life. And it's a tremendous gift to discover the grace of having authentically arrived at the feeling of being enough, of knowing an inwardly generated sense of sufficiency in which there's no longer a sense of lack. Now, it, it, it's not always there for me, but I know, just like practice, I know I can dip back into that well because I've experienced it. And, you know, so when I went on retreat again um, this past December, I kind of expected to find the same thing, but not, 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 not. Um, in fact, I had the opposite experience. Uh, and I was experiencing this anger that every cell of my body felt like it was on fire with, that I hadn't experienced in years and years and years. In fact, I thought I was done with it to a certain extent, and I was really right in the belly of it when I went on retreat um, this past December. And I was really taken by surprise 
uh, and consumed by having to visit the 13-year-old rebel adolescent and young adult who greeted the world like this. <laughs> you know? And um, she was front and center, calling for my full attention and wasn't going to uh, take no for an answer. And I knew where she came from, but that didn't help much in taming her mind. Uh, so in the neighborhood I grew up in, there was, uh, it was a, a lower working class, poor neighborhood. Um, there was a lot of alcoholism and in adolescence, I became very aware of the fact that with my parents, you got two for the price of one. And a pair of married alcoholics will always support each other, or at least that's what, what my parents did. Um, supported each other all the way, including when they were neglectful or emotionally or physically abusive. And when both of them are heavy drinkers, there's really no safe place. And there's no one you can trust. And I, I just got tired in, by the time I was an adolescent of being a good kid. And at the same time, it's in adolescence that we become very aware of this mounting pressure to place someone else out there, and our true self begins to feel very threatened. So even a child of seven, eight, or nine understands that you don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of the dividing line between different and normal, whatever that is, right? Um, and as adolescents, most of us experience really wanting to be on the normal side of that dividing line. And we all want to belong and will all keep, often keep very painful secrets to do so. And the problem is, is that no matter how well you keep your secret, the very fact of having one is enough to separate you from everybody else. And if we lack opportunities to be ourselves in a web of relationships, our sense of self begins to disappear. And it leads to behaviors that further fragment us and mitigate our ability to access our true nature, our divinity. And to make the journey toward an engaged life requires becoming increasingly aware of and wary of the gap between our on-stage performance and our backstage reality. And the people who get the most hooked by the inevitable winds of praise and blame as adults are those who cannot recognize and separate seeing themselves through others as well as seeing others through self. So we all experience different and unique forms of this process. And we initially navigate trance as adolescents by commuting between the public roles that we are forced to play and the person we know ourselves to be. That's what sends us into to trance. And my own process involved uh, the pressure to become a girl. I literally felt like people were asking me to shrink in some way. And so early on, I learned to live one role at school and another at home by continuing to engage in activities that I loved at home but were no longer acceptable uh, for a girl to do at school or in public. And the teasing and the bullying that I experienced became incessant. 
Sometimes boys who were close friends of mine, very close friends in childhood, because I only had boys uh, when I, as friends when I was a little girl, they would gather as my brother and and my neighbor and I. We made up. We always made up these three-person baseball or football games um, to play that I was just totally engaged in. And after a while. They would gather around in groups and start hurling barbs at me and tease me incessantly. And I always kept playing. I always found the courage to keep playing, but a pound of flesh was certainly exacted every time that I did so. And for all of us, you know, all of us have different forms that this occurs in. I'm just sharing with you my own unique form. But for all of us, the pressure to conform and and succeed as those pressures escalate, our true selves become increasingly obscured. And we begin to settle for external rather than internal rewards, and often in the form of achievement and approval. And the ultimate irony of a secret and divided life is that we live behind a mask to hide our true identity. But in doing so, it eventually becomes hidden even from ourselves, and we find ourselves becoming the mask to some extent. So the divided life always gives rise to symptoms of suffering. And if we acknowledge the symptoms, we might be able to treat the dis And this requires working with our shadow self in a way where we really can understand and appreciate what they offered us in getting through it all. So we work with that shadow self with love and compassion, and we also work with our true self, our Buddha self, our divine self. And that's, and in doing so, that's how we begin to develop inner integrity. And it's hard to trust the integrity of others if we deny our own. So this becomes very important. So times of great pain present great opportunities and great challenges. And the spiritual journey requires getting curious about some of the, you know, they're not unacceptable to anybody but us. They feel very dark to us, but they're just some of the harder realities of our lives. And as we remove the blocks that we use to hide our shadows from ourselves and others, we'll definitely experience some discomfort, but we're ultimately going to liberate ourselves from our own fear. And as a child with a harmless love of sports and just being totally approaching the world in a kinesthetic way, uh, being physically engaged in the world, who simply wanted to be myself in ways that watered the seeds of joy for me. Uh, These were my Zen activities. I became the public object of ridicule and scorn. So how could this child not become a masked and armored adult at considerable cost to herself, to those who she would be in relationship with, especially as a young adult, and to the world in terms of masking potential future contributions. So we have to revisit the shadow side of ourselves, um, often represented by that adolescent when we want to go a step further in removing our defenses. And we have to begin to explore for ourselves where obvious 
and subtle incongruities between our inner and outer selves began to arise. Where did that happen? When did it happen? And if we can successfully navigate this step, we're going to learn something really wonderful. We're going to learn how to stop marketing ourselves to others through our winning formulas. We will learn how not to be so caught by looking good in the eyes of others, not to be so caught by praise and blame. Because as soon as we succumb to someone else's definition of who we are, we lose our sense of true self and the grounding that puts us in right relation to the world. And it doesn't make any difference whether those projections make us the hero or the goat, whether we get demonized or idolized, whether we are the objects of praise or blame. When we fail to take the first critical step of recognizing, becoming aware of, and learning how to fend off the projections of others and reserving the right to name our own truth, when we fail to do that, we become lost. And many of us start down this path as, as we begin to notice the incongruity between our inner and outer selves. And we develop a strong sense or desire for the authenticity and the synchronicity of these worlds. And when we live in trance, we live a wounded life, but the great thing about our true nature is it will always keep calling. So ignore the call of our true selves and we will find ourselves caught in impulsive and dysfunctional behaviors, addictions, distractions, and strategies that are formed either to win the approval of others or to cut the edge of our discomfort and pain our dis-ease. And the price is big. It's a numb heart. And every time we find the courage to come out of trance and listen to our inner Buddha, even though we aren't yet ready to follow its call, we're nudged further in the direction of wholeness, of less separation from our own divinity. And eventually, with enough awareness, courage, and practice in learning how to take guidance from our true self, we cross over. And we grow toward true self in a space where our growth is not driven by external demands, but is drawn forward by our trust in friendship, intimacy, love, and our trust in our own best possibilities. And just as we do as individuals, we can also live organizational life in a trance. And as young adults, we usually find a way to take our divided selves and, and winning formulas into our work and professional lives. And as I've been reflecting on my life as a cop and lawyer and some of my musings as a, as a new writer, it's also clear to me that I picked professions, being a cop and a lawyer, that I enjoyed and that also allowed me to maximize some of my winning formulas for the purpose of professional success. And of course, these choices also upped the ante of the shadow side of my conditioning. 
So it showed up strongly in relationships, especially early on before I got sober and developed the tools of non-judgmental investigation that come with a mindfulness practice. For example, a cop's command presence can save their life, but it certainly doesn't work well in intimate relationships. And lawyers are trained to believe in the adversarial process, where we are trained that the truth is most likely to show up through confrontation. And that doesn't work so well in relationships either. Nor is it the best way to arrive at shared truth. And confronting and correcting each other in debate or in the heat of an argument seldom changes anybody's mind. Some will enter that battlefield willingly and others will hide in foxholes, but nothing very constructive takes place in uh, in terms of enhanced mutual understanding. And this way of doing business is valued in the professional lives of many of us, as well as in our work for social justice to some capacity. In much of the work we do, we attempt either to persuade each other or build consensus, and debate is often a valued part of that process. So just listen in on, or catch yourself on conventional conversations at home and work and notice just how often we respond to each other by agreeing, disagreeing, or my favorite, out-experting each other in some way. So organizational life that requires these kinds of things from us is not very conducive to accessing our true nature or listening to our inner Buddha. In building a case for whatever strong opinion or disagreement that we are engaged in is a part of organizational life that appeals to the ego and is often valued in our culture, but it is not the material that transformation is weaved from. And unfortunately, most of us learn just how much the battlefield of debate is valued in school and academia which often represents early socialization. So living life on the battlefield of confrontation and debate is not conducive to developing and building the integrity of an inner life or operating from a strong understanding of our interdependence with each other. And the fear of losing the battle separates us, not only from each other, but it separates us from our inner teacher. And the energy that we expend on trying to win takes valuable resources that are no longer available for reflection and transformation. And in combative situations, some people will withdraw from the fray, others will stay on the field of of battle to fight and confront the, quote, enemy, unquote, However, once confronted by whomever we are subtly or not so subtly defining as the enemy in some way, we become even more committed to whatever we have always believed and are less likely to embrace the challenges that might lead to a new understanding. So we all have to find ways to be liberated from adversarial speaking and listening in the relationships and organizations that we're part of that's so common to this culture. 
as in our individual lives, any steps that we take in our organizational lives to come out of trance are of benefit to all of us. So how do we work with uncertainty and painful emotions and the shadow side of our conditioning? How do we deal with the challenges of disappointment and pain and grief and sadness and anger, especially when those things are activated by a loss or conflict of some kind? So the price of our hearts opening up is that they can quiver with both compassion and despair. And intense and challenging emotions can be both the ground for cultivating love and compassion, as well as the ground for building and reinforcing barriers and defenses. So at these times, we're asked to make a choice between letting grief tear our hearts open in tenderness or armoring our hearts in preparation for battle. And in the midst of very strong and painful emotions, as Ram Das says, we may fail our own practice tests. However, with practice, it gets easier and easier to recognize when we've got off course and to get back on course. So we don't always act skillfully in the midst of the incredible heat of grief or anger. But these times present us with the opportunity to find out that we are, in fact, strong enough not only to fully embrace our pain, but to recognize we've gotten off course, that we've headed for the battlefield in some way, and to remember who we are and to consciously step back off the battlefield. So our reaction to suffering is often as instinctive as our reaction to fear. We want to be rid of it. And when we are in the most pain is when we will rely on the strategies developed from years of conditioning to comfort ourselves. So every cell in our body intuitively wants to follow the familiar pathways we use as our protective and exit strategies during these painful times. And this is when we're most likely to fall back into the shadow side of our conditioning that served us so well when we needed it. Um, this is where we fall back into some of the, the habit energy and willing, winning formulas that worked then and that we relied on throughout our lives um, that served us well and that they helped us survive but now have reached a point of diminishing returns. And there's a reason why the common ground of our pain is the essence of the first noble truth that dis-ease and suffering exist for all of us. Grief. Loss, fear, disappointment, heartbreak, and the challenges that come with the winds of impermanence are something we have all experienced. Everybody in this room has experienced it. And the pain associated with this fact when we are in the midst of us, of it humbles us a lot, and it brings us to our knees at times. But the good news is, is we can use our own garbage to create the compost that's required for our own growth. And just as nature does, we can use our own devastation to stimulate new growth. So painful events and feelings require faith in ourselves, our practice, and in a deep understanding of impermanence. We have to have faith that the actions that spring from the most intense and painful emotions, including the heat, 
that can drive us to act unskillfully at times is not our fundamental state. It's not our fundamental state. Our fundamental state is something so much larger than this. So strong emotions are like raging storms or blizzards or hurricanes. To stay in the middle of them too long is dangerous. And we may get surprised by the storm or even caught by the storm, but we have to quickly identify some options for refuge. Otherwise, our feelings will overwhelm us. So knowing when to to touch in and out, knowing when to step back in the face of pain is an offering to yourself. It's not a denial of suffering. And denying our feelings or expecting perfection from ourselves in the midst of pain and anger is not skillful. Taking time to listen and attend to the signals of our body and heart is a necessary ingredient to progressing along this path. And nowhere is patience more needed that in the midst of painful and intense emotions. Patience is never developed in isolation from others. It is cultivated in all the moments of adversity, in our intimate relationships, in our friendships, in our families, our workplaces, our sanghas, and all the communities and organizations that we are members of. So patience is not about endurance. It's not about stoicism. Those are things that lead away from connection towards separation. But it can be about our ability to trust in impermanence, our ability to learn to wade out the storms. In Zorba the Greek, the author tells a story about the way our impatience can do real harm. It's the story of a man discovering a cocoon in a tree just as a butterfly was making a hole in the case and preparing to come out. And he got impatient for it to come out and breathe on it to warm it and watch the miracle happen before his eyes. And the case opened and the butterfly started crawling out, but its wings were folded back and crumpled. And the butterfly tried in vain with its whole body to unfold them, and the man tried in vain to help. And he realized too late that the butterfly needed to be hatched out patiently, with the unfolding of the wings being a very gradual process that took place in the sun. And now it was too late. He had forced the butterfly to appear before its time. And the lesson to me in this story is to remember that we have to be patient with ourselves and others. We can do real harm if we attempt to hasten the process that we and our others need to come to grips with our painful emotions and painful situations. We can do harm to ourselves if we try to force ourselves to forgive others before we're ready. But that doesn't mean that we can't have the sincere desire to point our hearts in the direction of forgiveness. So uncertainty is challenging for all of us, and it requires our patience. And pain exacerbates uncertainty with the unseating of the controller. And the unseating of the controller is both a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous challenge. And at these times, we need more than ever to be close to our practice, as well as to be selective about the people who we surround ourselves with. So when we're in the midst of uncertainty and the storm of challenging emotions, the best we can do 
is to remember our intention to do no harm. Forgive ourselves when we are unskillful in that direction, because we will be, and reset the course. And it's helpful to remember in times of great pain that an emotion is just an emotion. When I stay rooted in my body, I notice that, like all other things, the energy of it comes, it stays for a period of time, and then it either morphs into something else or it goes away. And people rooted firmly in a mindfulness practice are not people who no longer have any anger or suffering. Rather, they are people who continually explore how to take good care of anger and suffering when and as they arise. And this involves learning how not to over-identify with thoughts and emotions. We learn to intuitively understand the difference between anger is arising and I am angry. So with the latter, there is the solidity and over-identification that prevents a curious and non-judgmental exploration of the nature of anger as it arises. So we'll lose our balance, but patience helps us regain our balance. And patience will always direct us not to approve of the present moment and what's happening in the present moment, but simply to withdraw our insistence that it be different than what it is. So it's so challenging during painful times to relax with the present moment and not lean forward or backward. So patience with ourselves during these times is the forerunner to compassion for ourselves and others. And it's developed in the midst of our agitation. It's not developed when there is no agitation. It's developed right in the midst of our agitation. So it's developed by learning how to relax with the edginess of the energy. Sorrow and grief in all of its forms can have a, a tenderizing effect on our hearts when we stop trying to protect ourselves from it, when we stop resisting it. So in addition to patience, the ability to forgive ourselves and make amends when we make mistakes is an important part of this process because we will make mistakes. We're human. That is part of our nature is to make mistakes. And most of us have trouble not taking the bait of righteous indignation during painful times. And like anger, it's really, really hard for me not to scratch that itch when I'm in pain. And the result is often a prison of my own making and a deeper wound of my own making. So we're often blind to the ways that we protect, defend, and armor ourselves in the midst of overwhelming emotions. And becoming aware of our strategies for doing so is an important part of engaging the practice in our individual lives. And the thing that's important to really begin to understand is that we intuitively no, we can trust ourselves. We intuitively know when we are watering the seeds of dysfunctional habit energy or watering the seeds of the inner Buddha. Every single one of us in this room knows. We know when we're bringing the best of ourselves forward, the worst or something in between. 
And we intuitively know when we are choosing the separation that comes from placing ourselves on the battlefield and the residue of regret that is associated with the acrimonious behavior that occurs there. So interrupting the momentum of habit requires some curiosity and diligence on our part. When we're faced with heartache, what do we do? When we're faced with moments of difficulty or stress, what do we do? And part of the investigation that leads to insight is to become aware of our instinctual ways of being and reacting when we are faced with things that are difficult and challenging. So we have to understand what it is that we're devoted to and whether there is something that might be more worthy of our devotion. So this path, the wonderful thing about this path is it's not about ideological belief or blind faith. It's rooted in investigation. We use mindful awareness to investigate our lives, to take a clear look at the nature of our minds and bodies, to understand the universal laws of impermanence and interdependence. And we begin to understand our emotions and psychological processes and the way our world is being constructed moment to moment. We begin to see for ourselves the causes of suffering and the ways in which we can bring it to an end. And we begin to develop the discernment to actually begin to see for ourselves what is helpful and what is unhelpful? What am I practicing in this moment? Where's kindness? Where's compassion? What am I feeding in this moment? What would it be helpful to feed in this moment? Somebody asked a question um, and, and put it on the board about dependent co-arising and if we could explain dependent co-arising. Well, that could be three different Dharma talks, but the simplest way to explain it is this is this because that is that. And this is not this because that is not that. So everything arises or fades away as a result of causes and conditions. So how we act in this moment is the parent of the next moment. That's the most important thing for me to understand about dependent co-arising. And it's so easy when we feel overwhelmed to give up and yield to paralysis and staying patient with ourselves and others during the intensity of painful times cultivates our commitment and our ability and the inner steadiness required not to abandon or permanently throw anyone out of our hearts. Now, it may be skillful to take space, even for a long time, from people. Uh, we may have to end relationships that are abusive. But that doesn't require us to throw people out of our hearts that we're taking space from. And we may find ourselves not being able to resist doing so in the heat of the moment, but it's important to cultivate at least the desire to point ourselves in the direction of forgiveness and connection. However, just like the unfolding of the wings of the butterfly has to be done patiently and in the sun, we have to be careful about not trying to accelerate this process 
before we're ready or it may backfire on us. And again, that's where patience comes in. Once again, we're asked to be patient with ourselves. And we need to remember it's important to allow ourselves to fully experience our own pain and at the same time to honor our intention to do no harm. And nowhere is the sense of self and other more solid than in the midst of fear and anger. There's no ease, no peace or freedom in the separation that fear and anger lead to. But fear and anger also awaken us. They can be either the beginning of abandonment or connection. We have to make this choice over and over. Abandonment or connection. This is the choice that we're asked to make in life over and over. Will we move toward or away from others? So as practitioners dedicated to the value of non-harming, we can do a type of spiritual bypass around our anger and other strong emotions. So fully experiencing our emotions, including anger, is not a surrender of discriminating wisdom. We're asked to engage in wise action, and that means giving our intense feelings room to circulate with a discipline to pause and refrain, to put space between a thought and our words, to put space between our thoughts and our actions. Genuine compassion begins the moment that we withdraw our consent to abandon ourselves or others. So compassion won't stop anger, but it will keep us from ending our connection with others. And if we do not recognize and work with our challenging emotions, rage, blame, and bitterness are likely to shatter us and destroy our hearts and lives. So to find a pathway through anger requires taking the first step of releasing the endless loop of blame. And it's hard to release blame, but it may be the only thing that allows us to move beyond despair. And as hard as it is to release blame, it's a much greater hardship to hold on to it. If we can't release blame, we're forever locked into a marriage with those we blame, and it's almost impossible to get a divorce. So when we're attached to a wounded self, endings of any kind, as well as tragedy and misfortune and all the blame and mistrust born of them, become the reference point for a life that cannot be fully lived. So rage and blame will show up at our door as visitors from time to time. They'll visit us for the rest of our lives. But when they do, it might be it might also be impossible to resist the temptation to invite them in, but it's important not to serve them a full course meal or make them permanent guests. So again and again in our lives, we're invited to ask and explore what is needed to ease the suffering in this moment. Do we need to say no when it's easier to say yes? Do we need to say yes when it's easier to say no? Do we need to risk losing the approval and affirmation of others in order to act or speak with integrity? These are all questions that we can only answer for ourselves. And in my own times of tremendous pain and grief, I've taken the most comfort and strength in those few people who neither fled from my pain or tried to talk me out of it. 
and their willingness to simply be present with me revealed their faith and their trust in me that I had or have the internal resources to make the challenging journey through my pain. And that reinforced my faith in myself in a powerful way. So it's important to make good choices about who we put ourselves around in these times. And this kind of acceptance doesn't lead to resting on one's laurels. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Defenses come down as we are surrounded by a kind of energy that helps us grow from the inside out as we find a container that is safe enough to take the risks and endure the failures that growth requires. And just as we can learn to work with the pain and uncertainty that gets activated when we find ourselves lost in the trance of our individual conditioning, we can do the same with the trance that comes from organizational conditioning. So with respect to organizational trance, it's important to recognize when we are doing or saying things that are betraying our inner true selves, betraying what we intuitively and deeply know to be true. And in a market economy that values profit, above all else, our culture is economically invested in us ignoring the call to an undivided life. The divided life that is harmful to individuals can serve institutions very well. And ironically, when we live by the call of our true nature, we serve everyone and everything better because we live by the law of interdependence. So we have to be aware that we are not as powerless as many of us think we are. For every external power bent on forcing ourselves, on forcing us to compromise ourselves, there's an internal collaborator within us. And we can't live a divided life without our willingness and participation in doing so in some way. And it is true that the refusal to go along to get along is very risky business. And if we value security over all other things, it's impossible not to live a compromised life. But every time someone has the the courage to speak out, against injustice, even at a personal cost, it's a gift to all of us. And every time someone has the courage to align their inner and outer selves, it's a benefit to all of us. So not betraying our true identities in personal and organizational life is risky, but knowingly betraying them is even more risky. So to avoid trance in our collective lives, we have to decide for ourselves what worlds we feel at home in. What worlds will best call forth from us the unique gifts that we have to offer? And just as we have to pay attention to discover the gifts of our Buddha nature, we have to pay attention to the roles and relationships in which we thrive and those that have the opposite effect on us. And One thing that is so important to understand is that self-care is never a selfish act. Compassion without self-care is always incomplete. And self-care is good stewardship of what we have to offer others. Burnout is a sign that we are violating our own nature or that we need different boundaries. 
And though usually regarded as the result of trying to give too much, burnout might result from trying to give what we don't have. And this is the ultimate in giving too little. And this is the essence of the new term, compassion fatigue. When the gift we give to others is an integral and valued part of our own journey, when it comes from the organic reality of our inner work, it will renew itself and it will be limitless in nature. Only when I give something that I really don't have to give do I deplete myself. And this kind of giving actually harms others in the end. So true compassion, like true love, grows exponentially with our ability to nurture it. And investigating all of this requires a gentle and heroic perseverance that is rooted in patience and honesty and kindness. And we have to realize the negative projections we make on people and situations that serve to mask our fears about ourselves. And this is an important part of leadership. As conditioned human beings, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And the poorest organizational leaders I've seen are those who do not value inner work in themselves or others. They simply cannot survive the worldly winds of praise and blame, and their employees and peers know it. So often, professionalism in this culture means that we are expected to compartmentalize or wall off our inner life from our public or organizational life. And the failure of leaders to deal with their own inner transformation will leave not themselves, not just themselves in the dark, but will also leave those that, that of us that are, they are empowered to lead in the dark. So what does it mean to bring our practice to our leadership roles in the organizations and communities we are part of? Well, the way to share your insights as a leader, you don't have to be up there in the hierarchy to be a leader. That's just one form of leadership. But the way to share your insights as a leader is to help create the conditions so that others can realize their own insights through their own experience. People will always come to their own insights and conclusions through their own experiences. And creating opportunities for people to do so takes skillfulness and patience. And I don't get to be who I want to be unless you get to be who you want to be. That's an important thing to understand in organizational life. So one way to, to do this is to create opportunities for dialogue that enable people to examine some of the more unwritten, perhaps unconscious, agreements that have been formed over years of participation in the organizational culture. For example, other cops aren't going to listen to me say that taking a free cup of coffee puts us on a very slippery ethical slope. However, they will discuss with each other whether or not cops should be offered or accept free cups of coffee. After 30 years in the criminal justice system, now these days I choose to be part of voluntary communities. And while most of these communities are also organizational in nature, a community requires a very different kind of leadership than a hierarchy does. It takes much more patience and initiative 
to be part of a community than it does a hierarchical organization. A hierarchy with its clear goals and its well-established division of labor and policies will always provide a certain amount of safety in its structure. I'm, I uh, like to say that I think it was easier to work in paramilitary organizations than feminist collectives. <laughs> but a true community composed of relationships where people are constantly rubbing their edges up against one another from a position where one person does not have power over another is much more chaotic in nature. And it's also much more creative in nature. So in conclusion, let me just say that the past will always surround us like the bars of a prison cell if we don't understand that we do, in fact, have the power to walk out. And if we don't understand our ability to choose freedom, we will voluntarily, voluntarily carry the worst of our genetic imprints without the opportunity to transform them. So in the long run, it's really up to us to decide what we inherit. And that's so important to understand. Our practice is based on the insight of non-duality. Both our negative and positive feelings, our strength and liabilities, our divinity and our human imperfections, they're all organic, they all belong to the same reality. And on the engaged spiritual path, we discover it all, our strength and virtues, as well as the shadows of our liabilities and limits. And with patience and right effort, we find a way to embrace it all. And if we do that, there are no longer any weapons that others can take up against us. And sometimes along the path, we are humbled by being stripped of our pretenses and defenses and we're left feeling raw and exposed. And therein lies the opportunity and the challenge. At these times, the inner progress that we thought we had made can seem like an illusion and it's really easy to get discouraged. We're able to access the inner Buddha and listen for a while and then we realize we've lost it and we find ourselves stumbling back into the dark. And we search again. But if we look back over time, we're going to notice that we lose ourselves less often and find our way out quicker when we do lose our way. And eventually we might not even recognize when it has happened, but we come to see ourselves as enough. It is then that we begin to experience the grace of letting go that comes from knowing we will always be a combination of our divinity and our humanity, of experiencing our Buddha nature and our very human imperfections. And acceptance comes with the deep knowing that we are never one or the other. Let's just sit for a moment. <clears throat> 